Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Good morning, this is Jazz Shapers. I'm Elliot Moss. It's where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm very pleased to say, is Matt Clifford, co-founder and CEO of Entrepreneur First, the leading technology company builder in Europe and Southeast Asia, soon to be the world, I'm sure, if Matt gets his way. Matt started his career as a business analyst at McKinsey & Co, and it was there that he met Alice Bentink, a great name. Inspired by Teach First, which takes promising graduates to teach in struggling schools, the pair wanted to see what happened if the brightest graduates started businesses instead of jobs. In 2011, they formed Entrepreneur First, investing in top technical individuals, helping them find a co-founder, develop an idea, and build towards a world-class deep technology company. So far, they've helped over 1,000 people and created over 200 companies worth $1.5 billion combined. Matt also sits on the board of Code First Girls, a non-profit which he and Alice co-founded in 2013, teaching young women how to code and increase the number of women in tech. We'll talk to Matt in a few minutes about all this. His belief established organisations can create artificial limits on what ambitious people can achieve, and perhaps we'll even mention his MBE for services to business. We've also got brilliant music from, amongst others, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, Aretha Franklin and Ibrahim Malouf. That's today's Jazz Shapers. Here's Donald Byrd with Change. Makes you want to hustle. That was Donald Burb with Change Makes You Wanna Hustle. When I say it, it's probably not quite as good as when he says it. I'm with Matt Clifford. He's the co-founder and CEO at Entrepreneur First. And as you were hearing earlier, they've been a pretty successful bunch since 2011, definitely 2011, Matt. And as I said earlier, it was also £1.5 billion worth of value creation. Hello, how are you? I'm really well. It's great to be here. It's fantastic to have you. Entrepreneur First, for those people that don't know, and I was one of those people, tell me what it is. Yeah, so we call ourselves a talent investor. And what we mean by that is we believe that the world is missing out on some of its best entrepreneurs. Um, you know, in Silicon Valley, if you're a smart, ambitious person, it is the most natural thing in the world that you would start a company. That's, that's not only uh, you know, a good thing to do, but it's almost like the default path. Um, in almost everywhere else in the world, that's not true. So it's certainly not true in the UK. You know, I think... Uh, you think about like what do the most ambitious people want to do in the UK for a long time that's been things like you know financial and professional services so our job is to change that our job is to make starting a company the number one career path for the world's most ambitious people but doing that requires you to really be willing to make a bet on people at the earliest possible stage so what we do which I think used to sound controversial and hopefully now that we have a bit of a track record no longer sounds controversial is we literally pay people to become entrepreneurs so we would say to people 
you know, Elliot, you've got an interesting background. Have you ever thought about starting a company? And then, you know, we would take 50 to 100 people every six months, pay them a stipend to, to live for, for three of those months and help them find a, a co-founder from within that group, help them develop an idea and get ready to raise investment. And we would invest uh, in the companies that come out of that and hopefully put them on the path to success. And when did this idea occur to you that the world needed an entrepreneur first approach? As you were saying in the introduction, we were uh, Alice and I were working at McKinsey in London. Uh, we joined in two thousand and nine, and you know we we had a great experience there. It was a it was a fantastic place to learn, met a lot of great people. But I think there was sort of a part of me that thought it is so strange that uh, places like this. My wife at the time was a corporate lawyer, um, and you know I had lots of friends in banking, and you know we had all these like very like ambitious people competing hard to get these jobs. And then when they get there, you say, oh, you know, why do you want to be a management consultant? And almost everyone would say like, oh, I don't really. I just sort of see this as a, as a stepping stone, which is, which is great. And McKinsey's fantastic for that. But I suppose there was this sort of seed in the back of my mind, which was, well, what if you didn't need the stepping stone? What if you could create uh, an institution that people could come to actually, you know, kind of maximize the, the impact they could have in the world through entrepreneurship? And so, you know, Alice and I talked about this um, and lots of other ideas, to be honest, uh, throughout the time we were there. And then it was as we were coming to the uh, end of the two years, which is sort of the, the typical time that analysts uh, start to think about moving on, that we decided to take the plunge and do this full time. And so far, so good. You're eight years in. There's another bunch of money you've just raised. You've got, obviously, lots of people who are going, this makes sense. It struck me as I read about this and spoke to a few people about what you do, that you've kind of, in a funny way, corporatized entrepreneurship. I mean, it sounds <laughs> mental, but as I was thinking about it, that's sort of where I got to. One thing I always like to say, um, which is sort of easy to say now, um, eight years in, is that like I was totally unqualified to start this business. I mean, like just totally unqualified. I was 25. I had never worked in tech, never worked in startups, never worked in investment. You know, kind of like there was like literally no qualification to start this business. Um, I also, you know, we, we invest in what we call deep tech. Um, but my degree, my first degree is in medieval history. Um, it's very useful. Well, what I, I am, I'm going to answer your question. And the reason I mentioned the, <laughs> the, the medieval history is, and the one thing studying history gives you that's maybe relevant is a real sense of perspective. And what I always like to say is that, you know, if you take a really zoomed out view, like a thousand year view of like what people want to do with their lives, what careers look like, what's really striking is that whenever technology enables a new way for people to have impact, there's almost like a pre-mainstream phase where that technology looks a bit weird and not many people want to do it. And then there's usually some inflection point where it explodes and it becomes mainstream. And, you know, you, when I say technology, I'm using that in a very loose sense. You know, I mean, I always think of literacy as the first one of these. Like, there was a point where no one could read and write and then suddenly it became really important to be able to read and write. There was a point where it was just monks and then it was like everyone. And, and you know, the, what I think about entrepreneurship and I suppose like what we've tried to embody in what we do entrepreneur first is we're still in the pre-mainstream phase of entrepreneurship exactly as you sort of say like what we're trying to do is we're trying to make it mainstream not because we think everyone should be an entrepreneur but because we think that the barriers to becoming an entrepreneur shouldn't be having rich parents and so having a financial cushion to be able to do it or stumbling onto an idea that just happens to make sense or your mate from uni happened to want to start a business and so you did too in the same way that it would be weird if like the only people who became doctors were the people whose like parents were doctors or learned the trade or you know kind of stumbled upon um 
cures, as in like the pre, the what's a pre-mainstream phase of medicine. And now we have medical schools and a path, and that hopefully is a lot better for the world. We think the world will be a lot better if actually all the people who could be great founders become that. And that's really our mission. It strikes me, you talk about qualifications, you said, you know, very humbly, I had no qualifications. You're not the first person to sit there telling me that. I mean, you're right. On paper, and I'm just pulling up the piece of paper now to remind me, the, the first degree in history and management as well, Matt. Don't forget the management Sorry, bit. Yeah, yes, Cambridge Alma Matt will be very upset. Uh, history and management, and then um, the small matter of going to over to the US to MIT and doing a master's um, in political science. As a Kennedy Memorial Scholar, the reason I sell these things is not to embarrass you and any of your family listening, um, though they will probably be glowing with pride, but is to say that that sort of group of qualifications on one level gives you huge amounts and on another level might actually stop you becoming an entrepreneur. Absolutely. And what do you say to the people that, I mean, can people get on your course that have done absolutely nothing in the world of academia? Absolutely. So um, we, we funded well over a thousand people around the world. Um, we have funded lots of people with PhDs from places like MIT and Oxford. We've also funded 18-year-olds who dropped out of high school. So we are... Not particularly interested in what badges you are sort of bringing to the table, except insofar those, bad, uh, those badges might point to something that you're capable of doing that uh, you know, is interesting to us. But ultimately, the question we're asking you is, like, what have you actually done um, that you know, makes us think that you might have uh, the basis of being an entrepreneur? You know, it's, I actually think what you said in the question is really important. So we often talk about one of the biggest barriers to entrepreneurship being what we call badge collecting. So, you know, you you get into a great uni and you feel great about that and then you think, well, you know, I could get a job or maybe I'll get a master's and so you know, I'll go do that. And then, then you're like, okay, I'll get a job. You go get a job and you think, maybe I'll now start a business, but then they offer you a promotion. So you think, well, maybe I'll do that. And you, you get on this sort of treadmill where it almost becomes, you've trained yourself to need the dopamine hit of the next um uh, the next accreditation. And I suppose what we think, um, what we try and say to entrepreneurs is, you should think it's great if you've got those badges. Certainly, you know, wouldn't denigrate them. Um, I was a badge collector myself, as you've, uh, as you've pointed out. Um, but I think what people need to do is see those as uh, a safety, a safety net. You know, they actually de-risk what you do next. One of the reasons that I felt pretty comfortable starting entrepreneur first was that it was massively de-risked by the fact that you know if it didn't work out I could go back to McKinsey I think the dangerous thing is to think well I'm here and if I don't take this promotion then you know my life will be will be over in fact I think it's the opposite the other thought though that occurred to me when you're talking is that for all those people that want to become entrepreneurs often and we are pre-mainstream I, I agree with you on that in your articulation of, of the, the phase that we're in but a lot of those people are self-starters a lot of those people absolutely don't want constraints don't want convention don't want structure and then you're finding a group of people that do does that in itself inhibit or undermine some of the quality of those individuals who actually do need to think a bit more openly like you did i mean no one you didn't have an entrepreneur first to create entrepreneur first yeah you know this is this is actually one of the questions that we think about all the time because what we don't want to do is be the program for people that couldn't do it <laughs> which is the danger with anything like this um but i think actually there's now um quite a lot of data to suggest this is is not something too much to worry about, both at Entrepreneur First, but also at organizations like Y Combinator, which I know you're familiar with. It's created over $150 billion of value through a, a program, um, not totally unlike EF. I suppose the way we would think about it is, 
what we're not here to do is hold entrepreneurs' hands and say, you know, uh, startups by numbers, first do this, then do that. In fact, the most important thing we actually provide is a community, a set of incentives, a set of cultural norms that are quite different from what people would encounter in the outside world. So it's less saying, cool, welcome to Entrepreneur First, here's the how-to guide, and more saying, you're now with people who can amplify your outcome. How can we help you on that journey? Stay with me for much more from my guest, Matt Clifford. He'll be back in a couple of minutes. But first, we're going to hear from one of our partners at Mishkondorea with some words of advice for your business. Hi, my name is Andrew Goldstone, and I'm a partner in the tax group at Mishkondorea. My advice for any entrepreneur at any stage of business is to become tax aware. Even if you're a startup, do spend the time and money. A couple of hours on the web can teach you a lot about what tax structures are out there. And then when you do go and see your tax advisor, you'll be prepared. You won't be paying good money just to be told the basics. Instead, you'll get tailored tax advice on what really makes sense for you and your business. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. There are many ways for you to enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers. Indeed, hear this program again with Matt. You can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers, and there you can hear many of the recent programmes. Or if you pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes, you can enjoy the full archive there too. But back to today and Matt. He's co-founder and CEO Entrepreneur First, investing in ambitious technologists to help them build deep tech from scratch. I love these aphorisms. They're just brilliant. In terms of you starting this business back in 2011 with Alice and the people you then had to go to, so you said you had no experience and all that stuff, but you quickly assembled a team, I imagine, and you, I imagine you had to create some funding as well to put this together. In those first few months... Did you ever lose the faith? Did you ever think this is a great idea and we're never going to be able to execute on it? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I really have this very, very clear memory of being in the gym about five weeks in and suddenly realizing that it could fail. And um, it was weird because, you know, we were talking earlier about this idea of like, you know, credentialism and just collecting badges. And the danger of that mindset in a way is that you you think of it as the next rung of the ladder, um, you know, and it's, it's always going to be there. I think the exciting and terrifying thing about entrepreneurship is there is no ladder. Um, and that hadn't, weirdly, I managed to get through five weeks of running, you know, this business with Alice without realizing that. And then suddenly I remember I was staring out the window and I was like, oh, wow, this really, there's no reason to believe that this has to work out. There were some very hard times early on, like almost everyone we spoke to thought this was a terrible idea. It really does break almost every piece of received wisdom in venture capital. We invest in people who don't know each other. Uh, we invest in people who didn't have the idea necessarily before they came to us. We invest in technologists, which very common in Silicon Valley, at the time much less common in Europe. And so we were constantly being told, yeah, it's really, it's a really lovely thing. You do that. But very clearly the subtext being, don't do that. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it took us a long time. I would say it was really three years before it really was working. It took a lot of iteration. And there, so there were some like really tough patches in that. But I think, you know, what I always say to our entrepreneurs is you can be wrong about nearly everything as a founder as long as you're right about the most important thing. And for Entrepreneur First, the most important thing was if you put extraordinary people together in a room, great things will happen. We were wrong about nearly everything else we thought at the start, but fortunately we were right about that one big thing, the importance of investing in talent. 
what you've described to me now, though, is is also as much as a, a, the intellectual side, and the, even if the practical thing was wrong and your your thesis was wrong, mm. except for the one thing, it's the importance of managing your emotions. And you're a guy that's had incredible badges that you've collected academically, and indeed you tick the big McKinsey box, which again, I, I meet lots of people, lots of those people are from Bain or BCG or McKinsey and, or Law, and or they move into then your thing. Emotionally, how important is it that you have understood where you're at versus the in- intellectual thing, which almost go, well, that's a given, he's going to be able to nail that stuff? We, we talk to our founders about this a lot, because... I think it's very, very hard to manage your emotions as a founder unless you know why you're actually doing what you're doing. So, you know, one of the least helpful things, I think, for founders is to make relative comparisons. So, you know, this is an industry where people get rich very quickly. Sometimes you feel undeservedly. People uh, lose everything very quickly. Sometimes you feel undeservedly. And it's very easy if you if you're in the business of making comparisons to just have this like, you know, kind of heavy weight on you the whole time. And so I think having a real sense of mission that's authentic and is genuinely the reason that you get out of bed in the morning and do what you do, for me, that's the ultimate way to kind of get centered around something that's going to be uh, durable. Not the like, oh, this week we raised a million dollars. Next week, you know, an investor that we thought was going to come in as pulled out. If if you if you're not anchored around something that really matters, um, then I th- then I think the emotional management side is so hard. And for us, that was always we really wanted this institution to exist. We really thought if we could build the place that the world's most ambitious people would want to come, that was something that was going to be important not just for a year or two years, but for decades. And I think that's kept us sane. You haven't just co-founded this business. You co-founded. Um, I'm going to get the name right. Uh, Code First Girls with Alice, your your partner here. A brilliant idea back in 2013. Very simple insight. There aren't enough young girls uh, and young women going into technology. Where did that come from? Was it a simple, well, that was the problem, we're going to do something about it, or was there a bit more to it? I mean, we, we were in a way trying to solve our own problem. So uh, Entrepreneur First, we take applications. Um, yeah, anyone can apply online. You know, these days we get probably 12,000 applications a year, so you know, it's become quite big. But you know, back then we had a huge problem that something like 80% of the applications were from men. And then if you filtered it by applications with a technical background, which is the vast majority of the people we fund, it was more like 90-something percent. And, um, you know, so often uh, people in tech, whenever you talk about the massive gender uh, imbalance, say it's a pipeline problem and sort of throw their hands up in the air as though there's nothing you can do about that. Again, I think we were too naive to realize that that was the thing you were meant to say. So we decided <laughs> we would build an organization to try and you know at least play a role in in solving it. And 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 sort of the the insight was there are like fantastically uh, bright and ambitious women uh, up and down the country, whether in universities or in jobs, who actually would be fantastic technical founders for businesses, but they've just never thought of themselves as someone you know, that, that can do that. And so what we said was, how about we provide an entry-level course that anyone can do? You can do it in a few hours uh, a week after, after work or after classes. And by the end of it, of course, you're not going to be a PhD in computer science. But two things. One, you'll be able to build something real. Uh, you'll be able to build something enough that you can build other things. And two, you'll realize that the um, apparent barrier of it just seeming like this totally closed world has just been removed. And um, so we ran a pilot uh, summer of 2013, as you said. I think we had maybe 20 young women uh, take the course. We did it uh, here in London, uh, over in Canary Wharf. And it was 
fantastic. I think of those women, uh, more than half now work in tech, which is extraordinary. And since then, we've taught 10,000 young women to, to program. Um, should be 20,000 by the end of next year. Um, partner with 23 uh, at least, I think, 20-something universities around the country as well as doing uh, non-university open courses in, in London and other big cities. Was it surprisingly easy to do once you'd actually formulated the idea? Because, again, that movement from theory to practice often is the big stumbling block. You've made it sound easy, or were there proper barriers in the way? I think it was pushing on an open door. I, you know, like the biggest risk to any uh, startup, and we say this to all our entrepreneurs, is maybe no one wants what you're trying to sell them. Um, you know, if there's no demand, then you, you're kind of stuck. Um, that was never a problem with Code First. It was the demand was extraordinary from day one. Um, I think that said, running it as a not-for-profit in a very distributed way, largely based on volunteers, largely based on the power of that community, the team has done an extraordinary job of like a very complicated logistical and community task. And, you know, we uh, we hired a CEO to run that. We started as an internal project at, at Entrepreneur First, just became big, too big for us to run. We hired a CEO to run it. We raised some separate funding for it. Um, and we had an amazing CEO, uh, Amali, who's, who's just uh, left after a, a five-year uh, stint with us. And we just had a new amazing CEO, Anna, who I think is going to take it to the next level. So, I mean, no business is easy, um, but I would say it was one of those beautiful businesses where there was never a moment's doubt that there was like real, real need in the market. You talk about mission to me, and then you, you talk about these opportunities, and there's a massive smile on your face, Matt. And I know it's not all... You know, it's it, here we're talking. You're not in the middle of a problem, and you're not in the middle of work, and so on sure. and so forth. But you seem like your temperament is perfectly suited to the lunacy and the ambiguity and the creativity that goes hand in hand with entrepreneurship. Have you? Do you get stroppy? Are you? You don't sh- strike me a- as the Alice shouty. Alice is bad cop. Yeah. She's bad cop. <laughs> no, I'm right. joking. I'm joking. Um, She's listening. No, I'm going. That's I, um, not true. I don't know. I mean, I think. I mean, cl- clearly, um, any sort of business with any sort of scale ends up you know, having very challenging situations. You know, we, we employ across the two organizations, I guess, probably 120 people. You know, these days we fund about 800 entrepreneurs a year. So, you know, there's enough moving parts that the most challenging moving part on any given day is pretty challenging. Um, but I think what what this kind of business in particular sort of teaches you is that only optimism really gets you anywhere in that, the, you know, the people that, you know, we've been very fortunate. We've raised you know, around $200 million of people, other people's money to, to manage and, and deploy against this strategy. And none of them are looking for a safe, you know, bond-like return. They, they know the risk they're getting into because of the potential for enormous upside. And I think when you have that mindset and you apply it to not just our position as fund managers, which obviously we take very seriously, but to everything we do, if we say, actually, the only reason this makes sense is thinking about the upside, the only reason it makes sense is trying to help help this entrepreneur do something huge, then yes, you're going to have a lot of friction. You're going to have a lot of things where it's like, uh, you know, this person is messing you about, or this person's just not doing what they said they would do. But ultimately, that's not where you're going to make or break the business. You're going to make or break the business on the stuff that really works. And so, you know, when I think about how I allocate my time, I'm always thinking, is this an opportunity to actually amplify upside or am I just getting distracted by trying to like mitigate downside? I need to think about this in my own life. Final chat coming up with Matt Clifford. Plus, we'll be playing a track from Ibrahim Malouf. That's all coming up in just a moment. Please don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, 
but it's personal. The super duperly brilliant, uplifting, and optimistic sound of Ibrahim Malouf with Essential, which is a big part of what we've been talking about with Matt Clifford, my business shaper today, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Entrepreneur First. Optimism and the importance of it. Optimism and upside. You talked about upside before, and I, and I like that phrase—a euphemism for making lots of money and also the positive things that will happen. What's your take on money, Matt? Where does it figure in the Matt Clifford world of important things? You know, it's it's, it's funny in this. Uh, in venture capital, because as I, as I was sort of saying earlier, one of the weird things about it is that although um, you know there's a, hopefully a lot of skill to uh, something like this, equally people make a lot of money when you never expect it, and sometimes you lose money when you don't expect it. And so, I think that's you know we, we've been huge beneficiaries of that. We've we've been very lucky on a number of occasions. You know, we had one business with the memorable name Magic Pony Technology, which was only 12 months old, um, you know, barely raised a couple of million pounds and Twitter came in and, and bought it for $150 million and, you know, everyone made a lot of money that day and that was very unexpected. Um, and I think what that experience taught me is that if you can't predict when great things are going to happen and when terrible things are going to happen, financially, I mean, you... Obviously, you need, um, you know, I'm in a very fortunate position that, you know, the business is successful enough that it's very unlikely it will go to zero. But I think you just need to be very philosophical about those um, ups and downs and those those variations. And so I suppose the way I think about money is that we cannot succeed in our mission without money. You know, so we need to raise capital in order to fund these entrepreneurs, uh, in order to employ the people on our team. And the most important thing for us is actually alignment. What we really don't want to do is build a business where we can make money without our stakeholders making money. And what we really don't want to do is build a business where we can be very successful, but then not make money for those stakeholders. So I suppose the way we we think about it these days is that we've tried to build every part of our business to be aligned in the same direction. So we as a team, our investors, the institutions that put money in our funds, and most importantly, our entrepreneurs all make money uh, through the same mechanism, which is if entrepreneurs build a great business that we've helped to support and it becomes something that is very valuable because hopefully it's doing something that people want, then everyone makes money. If we don't, then we don't. And and so like I think one of my kind of core values is just that you really want to be in a world where everyone everyone knows what they're getting into. There's total transparency uh, around incentives. And if everyone's aligned in the same direction, it just makes everything much more pleasant. And what happens when this all becomes mainstream? Because you've got a first mover advantage, as it were, and then there's suddenly six, seven, eight new mats, mm. young, shiny mats yeah. coming along saying, ah, yes, but what about this? Yeah, Is that good for you? Does it make any difference? Do you worry about how your business will shape up? I think there was a few interesting things about that. So one, for the first time, we do have copycats, which is which is flattering. Um, it was a very long time in coming, so we started to wonder if we were doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think what's interesting is if you look at uh, you know the history of organizations that are trying to do somewhat similar things, sort of take people and or try and amplify their outcomes, 
they're very enduring. I mean, we, we were talking about this in the break. There are universities that have been around hundreds of years. And interestingly, the ones that have been around hundreds of years are also the most prestigious ones, the ones that have continued not only to achieve their sense of mission, but, you know, on any objective metric to do well. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do feel that there's no reason to fear, um, you know, kind of Oxford didn't become weaker when Cambridge uh, started or when Harvard started. You know, I think there's a lot of room. But I think there's also something really powerful about the idea of community. So, you know, is it what which bits of EF are easy to copy? Frankly, most of the mechanisms of what we do are easy to copy. You know, we're not we don't we are not the rocket scientists, that's the entrepreneurs. You know, we what we do is in a way fairly simple. The bit that's almost impossible to replicate is the community of individuals that make up the alumni uh, group. So as you said, over a over a thousand people funded uh, around the world adding to that now very rapidly. And what's amazing is the culture of mutual support in that group. So, you know, imagine that you were tomorrow, you know, to, to kind of clone EF and, and start. You know, you'd be able to match as, you know, I think point for point on most things. I've been making a lot of notes. Yeah, I was going to say, just, I was going to say. Just watch out. Yeah. Um, but ultimately what it would come down to is who do the entrepreneurs want to work with? And so, you know, let's imagine we both make an offer to, um, you know, some fantastic uh, young entrepreneur that we really both think is the future. You know, you'll be able to sell all the benefits of your program and I can sell the benefits of my program. But ultimately what I can do that's very hard for the copy to do is say, and please feel free to speak to any one of these hundreds of people that have been through our program and we'll tell you why Entrepreneur First is, um, is life-changing. And um, I think that's just very difficult to replicate. And so we believe, you know, you know, we're really happy to have all the people in the space. It validates the space, you know, there's Obviously, as say, more than one university, more than one medical school, more than one venture capital firm, and there'll be more than one talent investor. But I think um, hopefully we're the one that uh, everyone wants to be part of. It's been brilliant talking to you, Matt. Uh, good luck. Not that you seem to need much luck, but um, I hope you continue to have fun, focus on that mission, and remain optimistic. It's all really good to hear. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen uh, it? So it is uh, Black Crow Blues by Bob Dylan. So when I first met my now wife, then girlfriend, uh, I'd never really listened to Bob Dylan growing up. It wasn't really um, played in our house, but um, Emily, my wife, and her family were obsessed with Bob Dylan, and uh, she would play it nonstop. Um, and this, of course, is one of his, um, I think, best blues tracks. That was Black Crow Blues by Bob Dylan, the song choice of my business shaper today, Matt Clifford. He talked about making entrepreneurship mainstream and the idea that at the moment we're pre-mainstream. He talked about perspective. Take a thousand-year perspective, everybody. Don't take a five-year perspective. He talked about a sense of mission, how important it was to be clear what you stand for if you're going to manage being buffeted around by events. And finally, and really importantly, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you only have to focus on one thing. Be optimistic. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers.